When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome everyone to episode number six of Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden, a 50-year retrospective. Madison Square Garden, a mecca of professional wrestling, a building that every wrestler wanted to wrestle in. We record one show a month to coincide with the 50th anniversary of a wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden. And to help us look back, as always, a man that went to every wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden for five years straight, starting on August 30th, 1971, Mr. Wrestling himself, John Arizzi. John, I, I know this is a weird question, but how you feeling? I'm telling you, it's uh, still a challenge uh, for those of you. I don't even remember when we taped the last podcast that I announced that I got COVID or no. No, it was you didn't get it yet. Okay. Well, I got it and uh, got it on January the uh 26th, uh, which was a Wednesday. I went out to dinner with some friends uh, for my birthday, turned 65. and Happy birthday. Uh, within 48 hours, I had some symptoms, and uh, within three days, I was down for the count, and here we are two and a half weeks later. Even though, um, you know, there's no more fever, obviously. There's no body aches. There's no closed throat and all the other things. I'm still brain fog and lethargic and getting tired really fast. Uh, so uh, it's been a challenge for me, and I still don't sound right. I still have that in my voice. I could just you know hear it. Uh, but it was uh, it's been a you know it's been a really rough two and a half weeks. But uh, we'll get through it, and uh, I'm just happy to be here to do this. And I'm glad I had my vaccination and my booster because I believe that certainly worked to, you know, keep me out of the hospital and keep me out of the ground. You had all your shots. Oh, yeah. I had the two plus the booster, uh, but I had the booster in August, so it might have waned with its uh, effectiveness. And uh, once there's a fourth one available for people my age, I'm going to take it. Uh, it's crazy. But it's uh, it's an it's an odd thing, man. And, and you get these. I've been getting these crazy dreams, man. And uh, it's so funny, Tim, that now that we're talking about Madison Square Garden from 50 years ago, I had a very detailed dream last night about me wrestling Kevin Sullivan at Madison Square Garden, and I forgot my trunks. I forgot my ring gear. And uh, I couldn't go. I couldn't wrestle. 
And there is a young Kevin Sullivan, and we're supposed to be working against each other at Madison Square Garden. I'm like, who gets a chance to wrestle at Madison Square Garden? I mean, everybody, you know, this is a dream for everyone. And now I forgot my tri- uh, my tights, and and it was a you know a dark area in Madison Square Garden, and I couldn't get in the lot in the in the back, and the dressing room it was an odd, long dream last night. Very ironic that we're taping today and I had this dream last night. The details that come out during uh, like uh, one of those dreams when you're, you know, because of the co- hallucinating or very detailed, detailed yeah. dreams is always, always amazing to me. Well, maybe because I knew we were taping today, it was in my subconscious too. And, you know, just kind of worried about how it was going to sound today. And I uh, had Madison Square Garden on the brain and I dreamt, but you know, even who my opponent was, which is a good friend of mine, Kevin Sullivan, uh, and I never got uh, there because I didn't have my ring gear with me. It was crazy. And my family was there. My nephew was a little boy. It was kind. Of, it was like nuts. The dream was nuts, man. Well, I, I'm so glad to see you're doing okay. You're doing better because we've talked on yeah. the phone a few times, and you you sounded terrible. You sounded terrible, and I wish there was something I can do for it. And all you mm-hmm. just you needed was rest, and you, you're still getting through this. It's been a few still weeks resting, right now. Man. You're still resting, so um, I'm wishing you the best, my friend. I'm, I'm, I'm we're gonna we're gonna speed through this podcast as quick as we can, okay? Um, so you can get back to sleep and get better again. And we want to thank first yeah. of all, we want to thank all our friends at Patreon for our positive response on the podcast. The community keeps on growing. It's www.patreon.com slash John Rizzi. John, I, I know you're always adding, besides the podcast, you're already, always adding things to the Patreon account. What are we adding, and, and how much can people get into it for? Well, it's five bucks to get in the door, and that gives you access to the podcast early. Uh, it gets you uh, all the archives of the Pro Wrestling Spotlight radio show, and that's for $5, the two podcasts and the complete archives. And then you can go up to... Uh, $10 level, which gives you bonus audio, $25 level, gives you bonus video, plus I uh, send out uh, vintage wrestling magazines beginning at the $25 level. You'll get one magazine from the 60s or 70s um, with that $25 a month membership, and we do Zoom calls as well, uh, or maybe not Zoom, maybe StreamYard. Uh, we do those, and then uh, the other two levels are 50 bucks and 100 bucks, and you get eight millimeter films, you get uh, photo sets from my archives, and you get more magazines in the mail. So for example, if someone is spending a hundred bucks a month, they'll get four vintage magazines from the 60s, 70s, uh, 80s sometimes. Uh, So those four magazines alone are really worth the hundred dollars and then the shipping cost involved. So uh, you're getting something back for every level. Uh, But five bucks to get you in the door. I mean, it's a great deal and uh, it really helps support the production of the of the podcast that we do and it's really a great deal for anyone who wants to be involved as a patron Absolutely, and one one of the great things is you're always loading more things up there. We're we're tying always. it into both episodes of the podcasts. So if we talk about something like we talk about Freddie Blassie, there'll be some Freddie Blassie stuff up there. Oh and yeah, whatever we're talking about every week. There's the article that's going up. I don't know if you got a chance to put that up yet because of COVID. You had the article um, with Jimmy Valiant that you wrote for him. Um, the interview that you wrote for him with Jimmy Valiant. We're gonna post that up there. Um, there's a lot. Always adding, always adding. So you know you, you can use it as as a companion piece to the podcast and go back and listen to things and oh this is what they're talking about and things and speaking of which i I know that we're into february right now and uh oh by the way uh patreon.com slash john arizzi if you want to join the patreon um one one of the reasons i really enjoy doing this podcast and 
Uh, we're into February right now, and I wanted to bring this up to you, John. I was looking. I was on Twitter beginning of the month, and this great tweet came out. And a picture came with it. I want to read it to you. Um, it's, okay. a, it's, it's a wrestling tweet, and it says, uh, Today is the first day of Black History Month. For us wrestling fans, it's a chance to dive into some of the best matches of all time. Let's dig in and pay respect to the great ones of the past. Okay, so that's really great. And there's a picture that um, this artist did of all these great African-American wrestlers that were in the WWF or in wrestling. And I started looking at it, and it's pretty neat. You know, you got, like, Ron Simmons on there. You got Mark Henry on there, Kamala, Ivory, I think I think I see there, like D'Lo Brown. And I'm starting to look around for other people, and there's not a lot of older wrestlers on this. And I'm looking around, and I'm thinking, well, where, where, you know, I see Dwayne The Rock Johnson. That's pretty cool. But what about his dad, Rocky Johnson, or Tony Atlas? They were the first... African-American tag team champions. Uh, how about Ernie the Cat Lad or Bobo Brazil? How about Sweet Georgia Brown, first African-American female wrestler, or Sailor Art Thomas or Tiger Conway Sr.? And it was making me think about what we do here and why it's yeah. so important what we talk about. It was very nice. It was, it was a great piece, and I'm not trying to put him down, but it never really goes into detail about, like, how about older wrestlers? Besides the 90s, wrestling's have been around for a while, and there are great African-American pioneers that we aren't being talked about anymore. And that's what I wanted to bring up with you. Let's go back to the 70s right now. When you were starting to go to the Garden, the WWWF. Um, 1971, you started going in August. Tell me about, you know, any African-American wrestlers. Were there a lot of guys in the card? Were there a few? Did they come in, go out? How did this work back then? There wasn't a lot of, uh, of black wrestlers, at least in the days that I started going uh, at the Garden. I mean, Sonny King was one that stands out. Uh, and uh, uh, he was on uh, several of the shows in the early days and because uh, we're not talking about the 60s where Sweet Daddy Siki was prominent and Bobo Brazil was uh, a mainstay in the WWF and uh, then comes back in the mid-70s to compete. But there really wasn't uh, a lot of black performers uh, who wrestled on the cards. Uh, just looking at some of these uh, results and archives from back then, I mean, I'm looking and the only name that I see that's really standing out is, uh, is Sonny King. I'm talking about the days uh, when I started going to them. And uh, you look at every single card. Of course, you had a big uh, Puerto Rican influence with Pedro Morales, Manuel Soto, Victor Rivera. Uh, but um, uh, when it came to black performers, there just wasn't a lot of them uh, uh, that appeared at Madison Square Garden. Or even in that time period in pro wrestling, there wasn't a, pro a prominent number of uh, of black wrestlers back then. Uh, I, I always heard stories about if there was one in the territory and if someone else came into the territory, one would have to leave or something to that effect. Was that true? Yeah, I, I never heard that, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me with the way people thought about things back then. Obviously, we're in a very different time and place uh, where that wouldn't even be considered. Uh, but years ago, I mean, you know, I don't remember, you know, more than one or two black uh, athletes on a show at any given time. I mean, later on, you know, you had the Ernie Lads of the world who came back and the Boba Brazils. And there really isn't there, I can't like rattle off 10 names to you. Yeah, because it just wasn't there. And the names I rattled off go, they span probably like 30 to 40 years of wrestling. Yeah. So it was not prominent as it is today. And I, I appreciate seeing the stuff from the 90s on, but this is why we do the podcast because times change and 
you know, not a lot of people are around anymore. We talk about this all the time that actually went to the shows at Madison Square Garden. And I, I find it right. interesting, interesting that we talk about this. And I would love to hear a podcast also, say, from world class, from people who went to world class wrestling at the Sportatorium. Mm-hmm. Or how about Memphis wrestling? How was it? How'd you get tickets? How'd or you Los go? Angeles. Los Angeles. Then. That, and then the I know Earl Maynard was a prominent black wrestler back then in the Los Angeles area. And uh, Bearcat Wright was out there as well in the early 70s. And uh, there's another wrestler who they called Pork Chop Cash. <laughs> really? Out in Los Angeles. And he, Pork Chop Cash, was actually a guy named Al Nelson, who was kind of a jobber guy in the uh, WWF. And then he goes out to L.A. and he wins the title. Uh, and when they change his name to Pork Chop Cash. And he was an accomplished guy. But um, I always thought that that name was just not appropriate or right because it seemed to be something that was stereotypical. Really, a lot of the promoters were uh, in that mindset of utilizing black athletes in a very uh, stereotypical way. Kamala, back in the day, he was uh, a Sugar Bear Harris, and it was I think it was Jerry Lawler that changed him into Kamala, made that character of Kamala, which is still kind of uh, kind of a racist character. It's a caricature, yeah. pretty much. Even current day, I mean, current day, I mean, Attitude Era, when you have a... Uh, guys like Papa Shango, right, or or the Kamala character, or, yeah. or um, I mean, those were all kind of really stereo. Stereo. It wasn't right. Let's put it that way. Yeah, stereotypical. Yeah, I know you. I, I knew where you're going with that. I can't talk very well, Tim. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but we want. Just wanted. It is Black History Month, and we wanted to shine a little light of what it was like back in the day uh, at the yeah. Garden for African American wrestlers trying to make a name for themselves, or maybe they'll just come in and do a spot show. Well, let's go to today's show, February 21st, 1972. Attendance 22,090. Another sellout for the WWF. Um, build up for TV, John. Tickets same way as normal. You watch it on TV. Anything special? You can remember back then? Well, I do remember uh, the card, in my opinion, was not the strongest Madison Square Garden card, but of course I was hooked, so I was going to go. This uh, was still me sitting in the uh, second level. Uh, I was corrected by one of our listeners saying that it wasn't the loge, it was the promenade or something. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember it being the loge. Uh, That's where I was sitting for this show. But it wasn't a show that I was very over-the-top excited about uh, because it just seemed to be a little blasé with uh, with the main event with Morales Tanaka and and, and not really a lot of uh, uh, not really a lot of sizzle to this one I get you I get you I want to go back a little um so if you're not really sure Madison Square Garden is in the United States it's in New York New York is a state and also a city in, in the United States. So this is in the state well, of New York. Well, it's New York, New York. A city so nice, they named it twice. Exactly, Tim. exactly. And um, I learned that from my daddy back in the day. <laughs> so New York, New York, New York City, also known as Manhattan, that's where Madison Square Garden is, and it's on an island. And it's not like other arenas where you can, you know, there are a lot of people that live in Manhattan, but there's more people that live in the surrounding areas outside Manhattan. And how do you get into Manhattan? You take the train in. So you used to take the train all the time to the garden. And it's it's a different experience taking the train to the garden because you're, you're actually limited pretty much. So when, when, you, when you get in, it's one thing. But leaving, you got to leave by a certain time or you're going to miss your train. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the train was 
1110 that left Penn Station to Babylon. And the next one after that wasn't going to be until, I think, 1210. They didn't have any express trains, so they were all locals. So it still took you an hour and a half to get back home anyway. But if you missed that 1110 train, you were you were out of luck for at least an hour. And, and no one wanted to sit around in Penn Station after 11 o'clock. No. It's not the, not the nicest place in the world. And also, the WWWF knew at the time when the trains left because they got you out in time for the train. Well, yeah, they had the New York State law anyway where you had to end the show at 11 p.m. one way or the other because that was the curfew. So you, you would notice that during the last match of the night, a lot of people would be getting up out of their seats and leaving, uh, which is another reason why the main event really was never last. And we're going to go into that today. First match, it's a midget match, also known as little people match. Farmer Jerome and Joey Russell defeated Frenchie Lamont and Sky Lolo in 17 minutes, 32 seconds. That that seems like a long time, John, for a match. It was two falls out of three. So uh, the, the the baby face uh, little guys, uh, they won two uh, falls to one. And what I really enjoyed about this uh, was seeing Sky Lolo, who was just still a legendary uh, midget wrestler back then, and just a little old guy, bald, and uh, it was entertainment. It was, a, you know, it's one of those comedy matches that they start off with. The the, the midget performers were always there for uh, entertainment value, and a lot of times opened up the show. They always entertained. And Frenchie Lamont I'd heard of uh, for a long time, and seeing him in Sky Low Low, I mean, it was kind of, that was kind of special for me to see those guys, because I read about them in the magazines. Oh, yeah, yeah. Did they always have the same referee with them? Because it seemed like they really tied hmm. in the referee a lot to no. the matches. no. No, no, there were different referees. Imagine that if they would have had a special referee just for the little people. Yeah. Like I, the little people referee. Oh, that, see, that would have been something. But I always see when I'm watching those those matches on YouTube, it just seems like the referee's really involved in the match. Yeah, I mean, they do a lot of spots, a lot of comedy spots where, you know, sometimes the referee would get bit on the keister, as Vince McMahon would say, the keister. <laughs> uh, or they'd roll around. They do these spots at where the referee would pick up uh, the little guy, and put him back in the corner if he was running in un without the tag. It was always fun to watch. It was always uh, great entertainment, and uh, of course, we don't see them anymore, uh, but uh, back then, they were always a staple on on a lot of the garden shows and a lot of the house shows in the, in the area. Let's go on to match number two. Pompero Furpo defeated Rene Goulet in four minutes, 55 seconds. This, John, was a big win beating one of the half of the tag team champions. Yeah, I mean, uh, you could tell that they were giving Furpo a big push, and uh, he was somebody that uh, was drawing uh, some excitement. You knew that he was going up the ladder and would eventually uh, get a title match against Pedro Morales there at the Garden, but Furpo, when he came in uh, with the Grand Wizard uh, as his manager, brought some excitement, and he was uh, a legendary performer, and he was somebody that... Um, there was a great mystique about. He used to have his uh, shrunken head uh, with him. One of the great things about the shrunken head, it was called Shimu, Shimu, and it was actually a real shrunken head, and uh, his uh, kids have it to this day. 
had a really lengthy interview with his daughter, Mary, after Pempera had passed. What great stories that she had. I mean, the guy was born, like I said, in 1930 in Argentina. He grew up around sports. His father was a promoter of boxing. He wasn't the best ring technician, but he was wild. The wild bull of the pampas is what they called him, and finishing move is the claw hold, uh, which he had. But he was a short in stature, but he had this wild, frizzy hair, and he had this booming voice. Uh, and we're going to play a promo of his uh, in a future episode when he gets up against Chief J. Strongbow, I believe. And we have the, some audio clips of him back in the day. And he was just wild and big, and he had charisma. And uh, he was somebody that won a lot of titles around the world, and he was a big family man. One of the biggest reasons he left the business was one of his kids was sick, and he decided to take a job in the post office uh, so he could have steady income and take care of his family. But he's somebody that I really would have loved to know because how great he was and, and how uh, short-lived his, his, uh, his reign was in the WWF. He was only in for the one shot. And then he was gone, and then he did a lot of work out in Los Angeles and, and Hawaii and uh, San Francisco. I mean, he, uh, he, he spent most of his time out on the West Coast. He was very influential with other wrestlers, just like we talked about before, Macho Man Randy Savage. Furpo yeah. was the first one to go, oh, yeah! Right. He, he did that. Uh, his promos were really, really good. I mean, uh, he was ahead of his time with a lot of catchphrases and uh, uh, no doubt would have made a fortune in merchandising today uh, if he was with the WWE. Uh, and he would be like, I will take care of business. And then he'd always end it with, oh, yeah, you know, just um, just wild man, a legendary performer and him uh, up against Rene Goulet. Uh, and him uh, getting the victory in a rather short period of time in only four minutes, four minutes, 55 seconds, they were giving him a big push. And he was getting just as big of a push on television winning each and every week. Do you ever, do you ever hear this story? Richie put it down in this story in our notes is that Pampero Furpo didn't like to be hit in the stomach. No, uh, he had a um, an operation in his abdomen that that might have not gone well or it never healed properly. And he was always afraid that if you would hit him in the, uh, in the abdomen, that he would die. So he would tell guys, do not hit me in the, in the stomach. I will die. He had surgery. Um, it was really, I think, in the 60s or even in the 50s. You know, before a match, he'd tell a guy, don't hit me in the stomach, I'll die. That was kind of what he would tell everybody. And, that, and it went around... Uh, the locker rooms and wherever he appeared, people knew that you're not going to hit this guy in the stomach because there was something something wrong. And that's amazing that you can even have any sort of a career in you know wrestling or any any contact sport after that, knowing that you could yeah. die and, and then do do a match that was still great. Yeah, he uh, and he was, and his body started wearing down a little bit. I think his final match was in 1986. Wow! So he did last a fairly long time, but uh, his he's legendary with his the territories in L.A., San Francisco, Oregon. He was big, big, big time star, and uh, sorely missed. A great family, by the way, and he did a lot in Detroit. He had a what a run he had with the Sheik because he turned babyface against the Sheik, and they had a legendary run at the Cobo Hall in Detroit. I, yeah, I could just see a lot of wrestling moves being used in that match. Uh, yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, and, lots of blood. And what, what I love about these also is if you have any questions about this, go check them out on YouTube. They have some of the great stuff on YouTube. So you can always go check out YouTube if you hear about a wrestler, you've never seen him before. Go check it out on YouTube. Let's go to match number three. Victor Rivera defeated Juan Caruso in five minutes, eight seconds. Yeah, that was kind of a – it's almost like a TV – jobber match in a lot of ways i mean caruso you know he was a he was an enhancement guy a preliminary guy what they called them back in the day and rivera was always the fan favorite and it was kind of a easy victory for victor rivera that night and victor rivera big name in the 70s never really heard about him after that in the wwe well he he burned bridges when he left as the tag team champion he and dominic danucci won the tag team titles, and uh, they laughed. They're the ones that beat the uh, Valiant Brothers, I believe. And uh, Rivera got an offer from the IWA, which was starting up with Eddie Einhorn in the Northeast, and he left left without even dropping the title. Uh, The time-honored tradition didn't do that. So uh, Vince McMahon put uh, Irish Pat Barrett in uh, as the uh, replacement for Victor Rivera, uh, and they held the title a brief period of time before the Blackjacks won. It's amazing how like history gets changed and then swept under yeah, the rug. Rivera was a uh, was a big big star. I mean, he was probably number two to the uh, Puerto Rican fans. I mean, right under Pedro Morales, and he was always someone that people had talked about uh, of getting the strap of being given the world title, but uh, that never happened. Uh, it could have been not in the stars from him, but he did go out and had a had a really uh, big time heel run. Uh, in Los Angeles and uh, had the Americans title there for a while as well and had a pretty major feud with John Tolis. Interesting, interesting. Let's go to match number four. Baron Miguel Sacluna defeated Manuel Soto in six minutes, 14 seconds. Yeah, and uh, this was another one where uh, Soto was up there against Sacluna because Sacluna was going to get a title match in March against Morales. So he got a pretty easy victory over Manuel Soto, and it surprised a lot of people that Sacluna was getting the title shot, uh, and it was almost like a throwaway. And I'll never forget that show. We'll talk about it next month, obviously, because that was the only time that my dad went to pro wrestling with me. <laughs> and, uh, and that and was we'll the match. That was the match he saw. He's like, yeah, he uh, he went with me uh, on the show. That was uh, March 13th of uh, 72. Match number five of the night. King Curtis defeated Gorilla Monsoon by a countout. Seven minutes, yeah. 16 seconds. That's a big deal. Uh, that is a big deal. And uh, Curtis, was, of course, was also in line to... Uh, get a title match but the the match against monsoon and we'll talk more about uh, what happened with him and monsoon in the very next uh, edition of this program uh, because this was the first of two matches that they had with uh, monsoon and curtis this one uh prompted the rematch because uh, monsoon uh there was no count out i mean there was no pinfall or submission it was a count out and the way they ended this match, you knew that there was going to be a rematch uh, because Curtis's was, you know, wild man, animal, uh, you know, with Captain Lou Albano. And Monsoon was uh, probably number two babyface at the time in the promotion under Morales. And it was a, um, a pretty, uh, pretty wild match, but Monsoon got counted out leading up to a rematch, which uh, I don't want to give a spoiler away. But that rematch is very memorable, and we'll talk about it next month. It was a very violent, memorable match with some interesting 
outside interference. Well, I look forward to that. Looking back now at these matches that they're putting on this year, they're building up Pedro for a big event, you know, um, but they're not putting a lot of big names against him. Why do you think that is? Why wouldn't you want to build up Pedro with better people? I don't know what the philosophy was behind that. Um, it was really kind of surprising that, you know, a lot of these guys that were even tag team wrestlers were getting their shots against Morales. Um, maybe they wanted to see how he was drawing. I don't know. I mean, I wish I knew what the philosophy was with Vince McMahon Sr. back then. It was the matchmaker and booker and promoter of that show. It, it, it started to, like, this would be the last sellout in a while because what we're talking about right now is, like, the fact that there weren't big superstars going into the ring to challenge Morales. I mean, the attendance just started dropping dramatically, even with the next show, Bruno San Martino returns for a shot uh, in the March show. But this one was 22,000 sellout. Then it went to 18,000 uh, in March. Then it went to 15,000 the following month. So they felt that they had to, you know, then they had to kind of pay attention to what was going on, you know. It's funny because when you bring in the people like the Blassies, you know, you're able to fill up the place. And yeah. I think it's great bringing in people like that because it'll fill up the place and you're not losing anything by this. You're not losing anything by having a Blassie in there, you know. I don't know why they did this in bringing up these, I don't want to call them B wrestlers, but, you know, B wrestlers coming up for a title shot that people get to see on TV every week. It was more of... Maybe, like, when, when you didn't see these guys, like the Blassies coming in, it's like, I got to go see this because we don't know when he's coming back. Yeah. It was a little bit of stale booking, I think. I think it was a little stale booking, and they had to come up with different ways to, you know, put Morales over. And, um, you know, they just kind of thought maybe it was guaranteed that he would sell the place out each and every month, and that's not the case. Hey, Bruno didn't sell the garden out every single time. He did a lot, though, because he talked about it. I remember hearing He did that. a lot, but not, uh, you know— uh, the number they're saying is 188 appearances, sellout. That's not the case. I mean, I'm sure he sold out over 100 shows at the Garden, but I don't think Bruno sold out 188 shows. You're trying to tell me something's fake here? They're smudging the numbers? How can this be? Well, I mean, you know, pro wrestling, man. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We're not at the end of the card yet. Like we talked about, they're going to put the title match before the end of the card. Pedro Morales defeated Professor Tanaka to retain the WWF Heavyweight Championship in 9 minutes, 59 seconds. Yes, the champion Morales had the uh, rematch with Tanaka. Defeats him, 9 minutes, 59 seconds, with the body, uh, the flying body press off the top rope. And uh, it was a, uh, you know, Tanaka was always a believable heel uh, with his uh, karate chops and his, his martial arts capabilities. Very believable heel, and he always had the salt as kind of a secret weapon that he would throw in the corners before the match started and then always kept a little baggie in his trunks just in case he needed it later on. But Tanaka was believable. He always was. He, he was very uh, – he was one of those guys that you would genuinely like, this guy's legit. Him and Morales, say, you know, the, the crowd went nuts when Pedro wins. And there was always – and one thing about Morales, though, he was such a good bump taker. He flew over the top rope better than anybody had ever seen. He was able to fly over the top rope where you think the guy would be killed. He just had a way about him. And he was very believable when he was selling. That's when the crowd got – they erupted because they would surge the ring and, you know, and they would be fearful that he would be – ready to losing and then they'd be ready to riot i mean it was always kind of that mindset at the garden is like god forbid morales loses here there'll be a 
there'll be a riot for sure. And uh, Tanaka was one of those guys that, were, you know, you would say, well, you know, maybe he could beat Morales, you know. Go back a couple episodes we were talking about. There were no gates around the ring like there are today. There's no barrier. There Not was a, at that time. There was no. like a string of some kind, maybe a rope, and you had security there no, checking things out. No, it wasn't out. until, I believe, um, mid-74 to end of 74 where they put barricades around the ring. You just said Morales used to go over the top rope, fall out over the top rope. Yeah. That is not something that happened probably at all during the whole card, right? It wasn't like guys are falling out of the top, all, over the top rope yeah. all the time. Like today, when you see high spots, you see them in every match. There's all these great yeah. high spots. Back then, if someone went out of the ring, that was a big deal. Oh, when you got tossed out over the top, that was serious serious stuff because you didn't see it all the time. Yeah, and that's what made it great because you didn't get to see it anymore. And, you know, the NWA had a rule. If you threw your opponent out over the top rope, it would be in a disqualification. I used to love when wrestlers used to come in and throw someone over the top rope. and they, I lost? How did I lose? I can't believe this. Oh, my gosh. You know, working those rules. And we talked about this gentleman earlier. Sonny King defeated Jimmy mm -hmm. Valiant in 14 minutes, 19 seconds. Yeah. Uh, Valiant on his way out, obviously, before he comes back with his brother Johnny and wins the tag team titles in the uh, late 74. Um, but uh, he was on his way out. Sonny King was uh, getting a push, um, and uh, he beat Jimmy Valiant in 14 minutes, 19 seconds, and and that might have been uh, one of the last times. Uh, I think uh, Valiant had appeared maybe a one other garden show, which could have been the March show, and then he was gone. Sonny King, uh, a.k.a. Larry Johnson, began his career as a professional boxer. It was Ernie mm -hmm. Ladd who talked him into joining wrestling. And then later on, he became Chief Jay Strongbow's tag team partner as they won the titles. Yeah. And this one was the first appearance of Sonny King at Madison Square Garden, which is ties in really nice with Black History Month. Absolutely. And he was a good wrestler, had some great moves, and uh, it was great to see him and, uh, and Strongbow get the title. And speaking of which, uh, match number eight of the night, Chief Jay Strongbow defeated Stan Stasiak in eight minutes, nine seconds. Yeah, another guy that was on his way out, Stasiak, after a um, several-month run. And Strongbow, always a perennial favorite, always with the tomahawk chops and the uh, Indian headdress and, you know, all the other things that made him so very special and one of the biggest fan favorites in the history of uh, Madison Square Garden. Absolutely. And Stan Stasiak, let's look at Stan Stasiak for a second. He had six Madison Square Garden appearances, two draws, one with uh, Pedro and the other one with Jay Strongbow. Four losses, Pedro, Gorilla, Victor Rivera, Jay Strongbow. And later on in December 73, he wins the title from Pedro. So it, it's just different. Mm -hmm. You know, we always talk about um, the whole Montreal screw job and how Bret Hart left. Here's a guy in the 70s that went on a whole losing streak in the territory but came back to win a title again. Yeah, I mean, he was a good hand, as they would say. Uh, he was reliable. He was believable. The heart punch, uh, his finishing move, was a devastating move. When you hit that heart punch on somebody, they'd go down and that would be it. Uh, so he had a great finish, had a great finishing move, and he was a really, really good, believable performer. It just shows what kind of a different time and different era this was, and that's why we do the show. Guys can lose yeah. so many times but still come back to win a title, where today... Eh, you know, you, you get that he's a loser. He's not that good anymore. If you're a jobber, you can't turn into a superstar. If you're a superstar and you lose too many matches, you're never going to win again. Yeah, I mean, uh, back then, anything could happen. I mean, um, one thing about McMahon Sr. was, like, he had these visions, and, you know, he would be planning stuff out, 
sometimes a year in advance and what he was going to do. And he had a he had a core group of guys that he would he'd bring back guys like Koloff, and Stasiak is in that category. Georgie Animal Steel, of course, George was a uh, college uh, gym teacher professor, so he only would work in the summers. But he had these uh, he had this core group of guys that he'd be bringing back that would be reliable. Tanaka is another one like that. And Blassie, uh, who would come in, um, you know, to do what he would do, and uh, so. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was really interesting booking back then. I mean, it was really simple booking when you look at what's going on in today's wrestling and, and of course, even the wrestling that we've been watching over the last 20, 30 years. It all started to change when McMahon Jr. Uh, took over, or he, he's not even Mc Jr., but everyone called him Vinny Jr., uh, but uh, once his dad passed away and he took the company over and he took it national, he changed pro wrestling forever. Oh, absolutely. How, now, how would you rate this card, John? You only had two matches over 10 minutes. How would this? Like I said in the beginning, it wasn't something that uh, you would be jumping up and down excited about. But the the biggest part of the show for me, you know, after you know the Morales uh, victory over Tanaka and Furpo, was the announcement for the following month. And that caused a pop that, uh, was uh, the loudest of the night when they announced that Bruno San Martino was going to come back and make an appearance at the March 13th, 1972 show. And they announced his opponent, the Smasher Sloan, who was a prominent wrestler and a tag team champion in the 60s. And Smasher Sloan had not been seen in the territory in a long time. So when they mentioned San Martino versus Smasher Sloan, it was like, Oh my God, Bruno's coming back and he's wrestling Smasher Sloan? I mean, most of the people who were at the arena didn't know who the heck that was. I never heard of this guy before. No, I mean, he actually was a tag team champion with Baron Mikel Cicluna. It was like during the first times that I watched pro wrestling in the mid-60s that Sloan and Cicluna were the champions. And uh, they actually lost to Spiro Sarion and Antonio Pugliese in a very historic show in, from Washington, D.C. And... And Sloan was one of those guys that was really a roughhouse type of guy, a brawler. And he would be appearing on television uh, to help promote and hype that San Martino match. Bruno, of course, didn't do the TV. Then he, But Sloan was there, and they gave him some victories to lead up to that match with Bruno at the, uh, at the Garden. The night my dad was with me. I can't wait to hear about your dad and you going to the Garden together again. It's been almost, yeah. it, it's, uh, been, it's been a little while. It's been uh, how many, like six months, eight months now. He went to your first show. And that was it. No, 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 no. He didn't. He. This was the only time. This one in March was the only time that he uh, went to. He took me to a show in 1967. There you go. That we couldn't get in. Gotcha. That's what it was. Yeah, that was the. That was one of the biggest heartbreaks that I ever had. Was the fact that I finally convinced him in 1967 to take me to a show, and I was 10 years old, and it, it was kind of like such an exciting show because i knew when he said to me all right i'll take you uh i'll take you to wrestling and i was so excited and the and the card uh and i'm actually gonna if you don't if you can indulge me for a second here let's hear what you're gonna tell uh, me about the, the card you missed uh yeah the card was actually it was february 27th 1967 so this is five years five years to the month yeah it was yeah i mean yeah it seems like a lot longer when you look at it, but no, it was 
uh, 67, um, and it was Bruno San Martino against Gorilla Monsoon in the main event. And I remember one of the things that it was because we're talking about Smasher Sloan. Yeah. Uh, there was a referee named uh, Jack Davis who was kind of a really built referee. And uh, there was a, an angle on TV where uh, Smasher Sloan punched Jack Davis in a match. And Jack Davis challenged him to a, a wrestling match, and they booked it for Madison Square Garden on February 27th, 1967. So that was like, wow, I mean, I really want to see that one. And then there was, you know, my favorites. I mean, Antonio Pugliese, uh, Spiro Sarian, who had just come into the territory. He was going to be on the card against uh, El Toro Bull Ortega, the friendly ox, who was Ox Baker, because uh, he was the friendly ox initially. Uh, he was kind of a farm boy, and he was making his garden debut uh, on that show. And there was a uh, an amazing uh, six-man tag team match, Bobo Brazil, Armand Hussein, and Antonio Pugliese against Bill Miller, Dr. Bill Miller, Crazy Luke Graham, and Baron Cicluna. My dad convinced his buddy, who lived a block away, one of his best friends, to come. And, and my best friend was this guy's son. And it was us trekking into the city, and we're going to buy our tickets, and we buy our tickets, and uh, and then we can't get in. Because security was like, how old are you guys? And, you know, you got to be 14. And I'm telling you, uh, it was a sad drive home. It was a sad drive home. And then I saw, you know, there was a photo spread in Wrestling World magazine of this card, which for me, it it came out a few months later. Yeah. But looking at it, it was like, that's the night I, I tried to get in, and I couldn't. I was only 10. Oh, it still makes you sad. It does, because it was the old garden. It wasn't even the new garden. Yeah. It was the old garden. Uh, and uh, that show, you know, talking about Bruno not uh, selling out every single show at the garden, that particular show only drew 13,000. 872 people. Wow. So it was a small house with a $46,000 gate. But it led to a, uh, you know, the Bruno uh, Monsoon. A Monsoon was a monster heel from Manchuria. Couldn't speak a word of English, obviously, right? Uh, so that brought a, uh, a very rare three-match series. That started it out with Bruno losing on a countout. So I'm glad, kind of in a way, I wasn't there because I would have seen Bruno lose yeah. via countout. And then they had a uh, second match on March 27th, 1967, where it was actually a draw. It went to curfew, so it was the last match of the night. It was kind of crazy because the March 27th show uh, drew 17,000 people uh, from 13. And then the third match of the series only drew 11,000 on May 15th, 1967, where Bruno uh, actually beat Monsoon. Wow. There's some history for you there, buddy. Yeah. So it took you five years from that date, five years before you can get your dad back at the garden. Uh, Yeah, 67, 69, 71, 72. It was five years. It five seemed years. like a lot longer. Yeah. Because it was, I went from 10 years to 15 years old. You know. So we'll, we'll, I'm looking forward to hearing that story of what your dad thought about wrestling mm -hmm. at the garden. The, one, the place oh, that you've course. been going all these months by yourself right. with your buddies. Hey, Dad, yeah. you coming with us this time. And I hope you're enjoying yeah. this retrospective of MSG, Madison Square Garden shows. And if you want to hear this early, if you want to hear any of the podcasts early, if you want to f live with the history, you got to go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash John Rizzi. John's always adding new things to it. You get in for $5 a month. It's a great deal. And if you want to get more, you can get more. But, like, you get to get, listen to Pro Wrestling Spotlight, the original shows from 1989 to 1995. You get to hear this show. You get to hear your, your new one, 
the Pro Wrestling Spotlight retrospective where you go back and you listen to all those shows and you, you talk about them. What I love about those shows so much is you, you're going back and you're, you're hearing about these matches. You're going, oh, wow, I know what's coming next. But at the time, how do they promote this? How are things promoted? You know, that's what I like about those shows. And uh, what I love about this show is we're going back in time and we're, we're going to these shows that I was never around we're for. We're going back 50 years. 50 years. And I was never we're around for We're Pro Wrestling Spotlight uh, podcast goes back 30 years. This goes back 50 years. Yeah. So it's crazy. We have a we have a two-part Cactus Jack McFoley podcast, uh, you know, the best of McFoley cuz he's agreed to come on the show and talk about uh, how Pro Wrestling Spotlight influenced his career and play some of the best of uh, McFoley's Cactus Jack. And so yeah, I mean, they're two different podcasts. I mean, this one goes way way back and and you could reminisce and you, and and it you know, the memory of some of the shows that I went to 50 years ago was vivid. And others, like this particular show, you remember some of it, but not the majority of it. Yeah. Uh, as we proceed with these things, you know, I'm going to remember some matches vividly because they were so memorable and historic. And they also had something uh, personal to me. Like in May, we'll talk about when Captain Lou Albano fought Chief J. Strongbow and that bloody match it was just unbelievable but that was with my little instamatic camera that became the very first photograph i ever had published in a magazine wow and i have that magazine i got it so i'm like it's it's crazy uh anyway it's fun to reminisce tim it is and if you want to deep dive with us if you're interested in this fantastic love to have you on the patreon it's patreon.com slash john rizzi yes. but if you're listening to this and you're not on patreon you're listening to where you ever find your favorite podcasts do us a favor. If you're enjoying the show, how about you check out the Patreon? But how even better if you go around and you pass this around to other people who go, hey, you know, you know Mick Foley? Well, before when he was before he was Cactus Jack, before he was Dude Love, before he was all these people, John was with him and he used to have him on the show. You can listen to this for free. And if they like it, hopefully they'll be part of the Patreon and join the community yeah. and we'll build this thing up a little more. It is a community. It's uh, you know, I always say that I have a very dedicated hardcore fan base. I never had the luxury of uh, having national TV exposure. So my fans, who are very loyal and very dedicated to what I do, they're still not the masses. I'm kind of the best-kept secret in wrestling podcasts when you're talking about <laughs> history. Well, we don't have the backing. We don't have the backing of like one of these big companies behind us. That's another thing. No, so no, I don't have Conrad Thompson behind me and, you know, who is – the biggest, uh, the king of the podcast with all the historic shows that he's done. And even though we've had conversations uh, that led to a falling out with Brian last and uh, you know, who uh, it is what it is. Yeah. What am I going to do? All I know is I, you know, I do what I do. I share as much history as I can with you. I think we have some really cool stuff and great memories. And uh, Patreon is the place where you could really do a deep dive into the history of wrestling uh, with content from the early 70s right through the mid-90s. Absolutely. And if, if anybody wants to reach out to you, John, if they have any stories of the garden or they have anything they want us to talk about, where can they find you? Twitter, at John Arizzi. I'm very active on Instagram, at John Arizzi. Uh, we have three groups on Facebook, facebook.com slash Matt Memories. Uh, one is a private group, one is a public group. Uh, and then we have the... Uh, Pro Wrestling Spotlight Facebook page as well. 
Uh, so look for us there, and uh, there's plenty of that. And there's a YouTube channel. Uh, the channel is Pro Wrestling Spotlight, and we feature clips from the podcasts, and we uh, also share some vintage wrestling uh, stuff on there as well on the YouTube channel. So subscribe to that. I mean, you know, what I ask you to do, even listening to this podcast, we've gotten like 10 five-star reviews on Apple uh, podcasts for this show. So uh, give us a good review. You know, it helps. It really does. And share it. There are links that you could share on your socials and say, hey, listen, I found this great show that talks about Madison Square Garden for 50 years ago. Here's the link. If you do that, the community grows. The listeners grow. And, you know, we want to thank all our Patreons so far, and we want to thank people who are listening to the show. And I'm so happy you started talking about your Twitter and about your Instagram and stuff. And your Facebook. Let me ask you, John. Where, where do you do the auctions at? Because you always do these great auctions with some uh, some wrestling memorabilia that we don't talk about enough. Yeah, that should have been mentioned, right? Thank you for bringing it up because that's also on Facebook. It's uh, facebook.com slash uh, <laughs> facebook.com slash John Arezzi's Vintage Wrestling Auctions. So if you're listening to this wherever you are, go look it up. There could be an auction on right now of vintage stuff. John has collected over the years, and we're getting to a certain point yeah. where John's like, look, I, I know what I like. I know what I need. I, I've, I've distributed things to my family and friends, and this is all things that are really good, but I, I can't use them anymore, and maybe you right. would like them. Yeah, I have some wonderful magazines from the 60s. I have autographed pictures that go up. I have signed copies of the book, Matt Memories, on the auction site, and I'm doing these auctions uh, twice a month, and we do them on the weekends. We typically put the uh, stuff up on a Friday and then we end the auctions on a Sunday night, and uh, prices start, you know, five bucks, ten bucks for vintage magazine, and then people bid against each other. And uh, but uh, we put lots of magazines up there. When I say a lot, I could put a, I could put a full year of Inside Wrestling from the 1980s up the entire year, and start it off at twenty five bucks. So I mean, you're getting a great value of these vintage magazines at uh, that Facebook.com, uh, John Arisi's vintage wrestling auctions that are uh, there, and people have really enhanced their collection with this stuff. But also, you're you're skipping over something. You have some vintage autographs. I remember you putting up one of Woman recently. Yeah, I had several uh, autograph uh, items from her. I also had some uh, contracts from the IWAS tours in Southeast Asia, uh, Jake the Snake Roberts, Diamond Dallas Page. Uh, so, yeah, I put up all this kind of cool stuff that I don't use. I have copies of everything, but I'm like, there's no, uh, you know, somebody would be able to appreciate this more than I do right now. And, you know, we're looking to get into the uh, custom photography of the 70s, uh, these vintage pictures to find a way where people can get signed and numbered copies of them and and you know i'm seriously been thinking about a kickstarter uh campaign to do a coffee table book of uh, these vintage pictures from the 70s so there's a lot of stuff that's formulating i just want to get fully healthy from covid get my energy back uh because i do want to make uh the next few years uh, something that's really special for fans of history because when i'm done i'm done and um like I said, I mean, you know, we'll be doing this show and the other podcast probably for another two, three years at least, right, until we catch up, and and then it's over. I mean, then there's nothing else. Then it's like, all right, then, uh, uh, then you know, then it's time to do something else in life, and that's uh, 
sit uh, sit at a ballpark, hopefully, and watch uh, my beloved New York Mets. There you go. Everyone has a goal. Everyone needs a goal. Again, John, where can people find you on social media? Twitter is at John Arezzi. Instagram, at John Arezzi. Um, three groups on Facebook. Um, Matt Memories. Uh, so, I mean, I'm out there. Just see, just even if you want to do a, a search engine on me, <laughs> everything is there. Everything's just, there. You know, just do a Google search on John Arezzi and not only the book, but all my socials. Uh, pages and pages and pages and pages and pages about me. Ninety-five uh, percent good, two or three percent, two or three percent neutral, and two percent not good. Uh, I, I read a review on my book today. Oh, please tell that. Um, quite frankly, I could not believe that uh, the site allowed this review of my book on it. It was horrific stuff most of it untrue i mean a guy just editorialized and and he says not saying the book is bad but this is what you know i mean and he kept saying and john's delivery in the audiobook is just it's a five out of five and but the story he told my he told my life story in this review of me being this horrible person that you know just scam people and it's all i do and and i'm like wow who is this guy and what did I do to him or her? And it just really kind of, it shook me to my core a little bit uh, I was like, because it was so untrue. Uh, you know what? I, I've had reviews done on me before and I got to look back at this guy or girl and you gotta go, well, I, I thank you for getting the audio book. I thank you for reading my yeah. book. And, um, I'm sorry you, 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 you I'm, I'm sorry for you, you know? No I, one I likes feel to bad be slammed, you. though. No, you know? no, no one likes to be slammed, but if someone takes up all this time and energy to write something like this, you feel bad for them because you like— I mean, it was it was like several paragraphs. It was almost like a book in itself, and I, I couldn't stop reading it, you know? And every other review on that page, and I'm not even going to give it give the page out, but every other review, there was probably six or seven others, were stunning. I mean, just like, just stellar and— uh, but this one thing, just like, eh. and it's the one that leads off the yeah. the uh, reviews, and I'm like, my goodness, you know. Some people, yeah, look, they- some people are just whacked. For example, I'm gonna tell, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not gonna mention a name or anything, but we, I got it, you know, we got two new patrons this week. Okay, one of them uh, joins, and I send a thank you note to everybody that joins Patreon on the Patreon side. Thank you so much for joining the community. I hope you appreciate the content. So I sent this person uh, who subscribed for five bucks a month a thank you and welcome to the welcome to the uh, Patreon and thanks for joining the community. And uh, within like three minutes, I get a response back: "Leave me alone." <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And I was like, look at this. I mean, all I did was thank you for, you know, joining the community. And I just get a leave me alone with an exclamation point. I, like, I think sometimes okay. pe- think if they people put down their email address or anything that you, they're going to get bombarded with right. spam. Maybe they thought it was an automatic yeah. uh, robo <laughs> whatever. But I, I was it was a heartfelt thank you because every person who joins, I thank them. And yeah. it's important. That they're joining, but this person is like, leave me alone. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'll leave you alone. Well, we'll you know? leave it at that. No good deed goes unpunished. Patreon.com slash John Arizzi. Check it out. Next month, we're looking to vote for Baron Miguel Cicluna 
has a yeah. title shot. Oh, my, oh, my, against Pedro Morales. Um, I can't explain this. Well, maybe we can figure out next month um, what how this even came about. You know, right. um, my dad and all that whole story with him. Yeah. And, and uh, once again, thank you, uh, Scott Teal and Crowbar Press for wrestling oh, at yeah. the Garden. That is our backbone for the show. We talk about that all the time. So where can they pick that up, John? Crowbarpress.com. I mean, it's my Bible when it comes to Madison Square Garden. It's called Wrestling in the Garden, published by Scott Teal, written by Scott Teal and J. Michael Kenyon. And it's a book filled with results and clippings, and it's available at crowbarpress.com. Pick it up. It's an amazing, amazing journal of uh, history of Madison Square Garden. And it goes great with the podcast. Oh, it does. A great supplement. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, John, that's it for us. Anything you want to add? I'm good, my friend. It was great to uh, do this again with you, and I know we've both been going through a lot of stuff. Yep. Um, you know, life isn't easy, and life throws you curveballs, and, but we're here and trying to entertain everybody that's listening to us today, and we'll be back next month for a, a really interesting episode. But I wish you the best, Tim, and everything that you're going through right now. Thank and, you. Uh, and uh, and I appreciate you checking in with me to seeing how I'm feeling and, and then, you know, being on top of this. And uh, you knew I wasn't feeling up to it. And here we are. We're doing it. We got it in. We finished it. And I look forward to the next time. Me too. For John Arizzi, I'm Tim Putre. We'll see you next time.